Welcome into Honorado and Bagnardi. Chris Honorado, Sean Bagnardi. Bags, man, a lot happening in the world of sports this week. And not some, some good, some good with the NCAA and the Supreme Court decision, which we'll get into on the show. But a lot of ugly stuff, of course, in Major League Baseball, man. If I had told you at any point, we're going to be talking about pitchers pulling down or starting to pull down their pants. Oh, yeah. So umpires could check for sticky stuff. Mm-hmm. What would you tell me? Uh, I would tell you Rob Manfred must be running the show. It's ridiculous what this has turned into, but but I'm not completely on the pitcher's side, and I'll tell you why coming up on today's show. The Supreme Court hands down an incredibly important decision in regards to name, image, and likeness for college athletes to capitalize a little bit and and make a little bit of compensation on who they are um, and why people care about them in college sports. And we've got a brand new head coach of the Sierra of the Syracuse women's lacrosse program, Aniski Unigrad. Kayla Trainer will join the program as well. Let's get it going. You're watching Honorado and Bagnardi. This is Honorado and Bagnardi, brought to you by Outfit House. All right, Bags, you said it in the open there. Pitchers pulling down their pants as umpires look for sticky stuff. This has become even more of a mess than you and I probably thought it would be. Max Scherzer, Sergio Romo are the guys who really stole the headlines. There have been other guys who have handled it a little bit better than those two, and Shohei Otani kind of laughed it off middle of the week. Your guy, Jacob deGrom, same thing. Kind of a smile as managers asked for him to be checked. But overall, this has been an absolute national disaster for Major League Baseball. Yeah, because it's something that is really important and it's a really serious issue about whether or not cheating is going on in your game, something that baseball has had issues with a time or two in the past here. Um, and now all of a sudden it's just become completely farcical, you know, and, and it's like, well, you want it to be handled like a serious issue and all of a sudden everybody's laughing about it. So that's the problem I have, man, because for me, you want baseball to address it, which means you need the umpires to take it seriously and you need the umpires to do their job. So in a way, you kind of feel bad for the umps because now they're put in this position where they're out there doing this. And and you know how it is whenever a new rule is implemented at any place of business, you feel like, well, we just got to do it. We just got to follow the rules. This is the rule. And and we just got to go by the book. Now, I think baseball is going to learn and the umpires are going to learn the right way to do this so that you don't become the laughing stock of the country. And I think when you have somebody like Girardi you know, pushing for it or acting a certain way about it. You know, once a guy has been checked, I mean, I think at some point you have to say, uh, Joe, it's done. We checked him, stay in the dugout. Your guys can't hit because they stink, not because he's got sticky stuff on his hands, right? Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the spin rate. Baseball is going to keep cracking down on it. It just, to me, they just have to do it in a way that doesn't make them look stupid because, now you've made a laughing stock out of a very serious issue. All right. 
the best thing to happen on this show in the last couple of months just happened. I lost IFB. I couldn't hear you, which is okay. probably why you you actually maybe made some good points. Um, you're siding with the pitchers here that th- that this is just a little too ridiculous. I think it's a really important issue that baseball has to address. But for me, don't do it in a way now that you become a laughing stock in doing so. Okay, right. fine, and that's fine. Here's why I'm not really on the pitcher's side anymore. They are the ones who took this too far. And I get it. Major League Baseball allowed it to happen, right? But if, as an athlete, you want to be so up in arms over, you know, in baseball, so many unwritten rules, right? And nobody takes themselves more seriously than baseball players for the most part. But as pitchers, you have pushed this thing, Bags, too far. You were using some kind of combination of substances that allowed you to grip the ball better, and everybody was cool with that until you started using the likes of spider tack. And now it becomes a highly competitive advantage. It is the same cheating in the way that steroids was for hitters. And look, pitchers use steroids too. So it wasn't like it. both sides weren't using it. But this has become a one-sided issue. And now pitchers want to pretend like, oh, you're making me look bad. Oh, this is so ridiculous. I'm insulted. Come on. Uh, Rob Manfred is an absolute clown of a commissioner. I will agree with them on all of that. But for pitchers to act offended by all this when they were the ones who created the problem in the first place, now I have a little bit of an issue with their their theatrics, if you will. I agree with you, but the problem is it becomes theatrical when it's handled the way it was handled. So for a guy like Max Scherzer to essentially be harassed about it like three times, they're going to check him now because Girardi's coming out. Now you've made it a joke. And that's my point. That's the dangerous thing here, because if you're going to make it a joke, it's going to be handled like a joke. So for Scherzer, and I'm not a big Max Scherzer guy, okay, yeah. but for him to just be like, okay, what do we do now? Take off my pants to check? That's kind of the reaction you'd expect when, when it's pushed to a point where it becomes ridiculous. I mean, look at this. By the way, there are adult websites now offering pictures like Scherzer and DeGrom and Cole a hundred thousand dollars to do like some kind of webcam performance as they disrobe. I mean, that that's how ridiculous this has gone. Uh, I think this is pretty funny. I don't mind the, the, like the pictures are having fun with it, whatever, making a ridiculous point of it. But I'll go back to my original thought here and that they are the ones who created this problem to now start whipping off your belt and pulling your pants down in front of an umpire is just a little absurd. I agree, but but to my point, like th- this is a serious issue that when you handle in a comical way, now you garner support for the pitchers. Now you've turned the issue around because, as usual, as baseball, you just don't handle it the right way. They, they right, got to I- check guys, and they, I think they do have to check them to some degree throughout the game. I mean, you can't just say we're just going to check a guy before the game starts and then – he could go in the dugout in, in between the first and second inning, and now he's he is applying something, and now the spin rate will be different. So I get it, but it's got to be done, I think, in a way that doesn't become embarrassing for the game. Look at, look at the bottom of your screener. This is why Scherzer and Zach Britton are saying, can't we do something in the clubhouse or the dugout? Can't there be somebody who's assigned to check for these things? Major League Baseball, and this is – This is true about management most places, right? 
decisions are made without really thinking ahead about what the consequences may be. And that happens, Bags, because management doesn't involve enough people in these decisions. So when you have a small room of people making decisions, it's like, okay, well, let's just do this. Instead of hearing from enough people weighing in that like, well, have you thought about this? This is something that could go wrong. I love the point here uh, by Kevin that pitchers are being checked mid-game and mid-inning sometimes by managers who are hoping to throw off the rhythm. And, and I think that is a real problem. And I don't doubt that that's probably something Joe Girardi was doing the other night between the Nationals and the Phillies when he asked Scherzer to be checked. I mean, he got hands umpire hands in Scherzer's hair. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What are we doing? And again, that, that's what I mean where it, it does put the umps in a little bit of a bad spot here. You, you kind of feel for them like, what are we supposed to do now? The the, the other manager is calling for this. I guess I got to run my fingers through his sweaty head. I mean, really? I don't know. And then you got Scherzer joking around yesterday, you know, telling the umps to check Bryce Harper's hair. You know what yeah. I mean? And now – the issue has be, has very quickly pivoted from we've got a huge issue here in baseball, potential scandal involving cheating to now what a joke this is. Yeah. And, and that's what's frustrating for me because this, this really is, and we'll see how this, I'm really curious to see the direction now the spin rates go because you and I, I think, are not big spin rate people in general. But if we do see now a crackdown on this, and a reversal in some of the numbers in terms of that spin rate, in terms of some of the offensive output, then what are we going to say? I mean, well, I I believe that spin rate is very effective. Um, look at Garrett Cole's strikeout numbers. I, I he can I believe he can still be an effective pitcher, but I'll always contend that there's a big difference between Pittsburgh Garrett Cole and Houston New York Yankees Garrett Cole, and we saw that shift, and I'm I'm convinced of it that. Spider tack or some other substances were introduced to Cole when he went to Houston and he just became a much more effective pitcher. So he can still be good, but is he going to be a 12 strikeout guy in six innings type of pitcher anymore? That, that to me is the thing to watch. That the thing to me is, 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 is the thing to watch here so far. My, my last point on this here, yeah. Chris, is just that there's a grace period here too, as we adjust. And eventually my guess is, this will become the checks are just sort of routine. They're done in a in a quick way, kind of a discreet way in between innings during a commercial break. It's something that's like a checklist. We're going to do this, 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 and then we're moving on. And this is something we won't be talking about later in the year unless we see some shift in the numbers as a result of it. And then the discussion will be, I guess it's working. So it's it had a bad first week. I do think in the long run this will be okay. This will not be something that, that makes baseball a laughing stock throughout the entire season. It's just like, as usual, here we go with baseball. But over the long haul, I think we'll be okay. We're talking about two instances, really, but how out of touch is Manfred? He thinks it's going really well. I know. That's a, don't, don't come out and say that, man. Come right, on. Right. We got we to read the room a little. We've got some things to work on. There have been a couple yeah. incidences, incidents that, you know, gain national attention. We will straighten some things out. We'll figure out the most effective way to do this. I still believe these checks need to be done. Period. You know what frustrates me about him is he doesn't seem like a guy who's ever going to be like, my bad. And how many bosses do you know? 
who are like that. And it's like, that's so frustrating. That's just poor leadership to, to never hear somebody go, you know what? We screwed that one up. We're going to make some changes. We'll get it right. That's, that's leadership. And I think that's one of the bigger things that's absent from this guy that really has turned him off to a lot of baseball fans and probably a lot of players and coaches around the league. Are the Mets for real? I'll give you two numbers later in the show to make the argument and that they are and then the counter argument that they are not. Plus, two big names in the Home Run Derby. I wonder if Bags is fired up about July 12th and the Home Run Derby before the All-Star Game. But we had big news this week out of the Supreme Court, and the justice is ruling with former college athletes and how that will benefit current and future college athletes. Sports legal analyst Dan Lust, buddy of ours, will join the show coming up here on Honorado and Bagnardi. That's next. Happiness is found in simple things. The sun on your face, sharing laughs, at the campground, getting wet, relaxing together, the love of family. There's never been a better time to go outside and play. Alpenhouse Pool Spa Boat and RV, bringing families together and creating memories since 1964. Teams, athletes, organizations. We're transforming the custom apparel industry through product and purpose. Claim your crown. And now, back to Honorado and Bagnardi. Brought to you by Alpenhouse. Bags, I think this was the decision so many of us were waiting for. For the Supreme Court, the highest court in all the land, to side with the benefits college athletes should probably have access to. And I'm not talking about players getting paid by the university i'm talking about guys and girls just being allowed to make a little bit of money off themselves if a jersey is sold if somebody wants their autograph if somebody wants their picture if somebody wants to give them an endorsement deal like an auto dealership why shouldn't they be allowed to do that now we've got the ncaa in a little bit of an interesting spot after the supreme court says Name, image, and likeness, those college athletes have the right to make a little bit of money off those three things. Dan Lust covers it all. Uh, He's got a podcast called Conduct Detrimental. He is a legal professor, and he's a buddy of ours as a sports legal analyst, and he joins us here on the show. Dan, it's good to see you, man. It's been a while since we've had a chance to catch up, but we appreciate the time. Tell us a little bit here why this decision is so important important and what comes next specifically in july so certainly guys and it's a pleasure to be back on uh chris as you know i'm a 2010 graduate of union college so very uh, near and dear to the capital region yes, so yeah I, I guess where we start there's two things to point out right the supreme court doesn't touch college sports it, it's been really about a half a century since it happened and the last time they touched it 
uh, really that turned college sports from a million-dollar business into a billion-dollar business. That was the case uh, Board of Regents, which took that national spotlight game that we used to have once uh, every Saturday and turned it into the ACC network, the Big Ten network, the Pac-12 network. So when the Supreme Court sprinkles its pixie dust on college sports, it tends to <laughs> explode, right? So what do we have here? We have a 9-0 decision. In our country, there are very few things that are bipartisan issues in the Supreme Court with the ringing endorsement is saying paying college athletes is something that the left and the right should both be on board of. So unanimous decisions don't happen that often, uh, but here, obviously a big unanimous decision. So what does this really say? Uh, you know, big picture uh, is a little bit different than the small picture. This case is about taking back the NCAA's restraint. So the NCAA was trying to cap what we call academic compensation, reimbursements for books and laptops, Maybe not the biggest deal, right? Uh, you know, you're not going to get a five-star recruit by telling him you can get a full reimbursement on your <laughs> laptop. Um, but you know, the the truth is, the language in this decision really could have been one word. This is the big picture. Um, it could have said the word affirmed, but the Supreme Court decided to dedicate 45 pages, single-spaced, to a scathing opinion against the NCAA. And I talk about sprinkling this pixie dust, right? This was a decision that basically put student athletes in the same sentence as workers and the word fair market value. So that's telling you that the Supreme Court is saying next time that someone challenges the NCAA in court about whether we should pay student athletes, we should consider them more akin to employees and getting paired fair market value than zero in basically uh, this free student athlete scheme. Yeah, so do you think then the way do you think they did that on purpose in terms of that approach and instead of just saying affirmed and coming out this way that the intent was to really send a message about the future and to really send the bigger picture message that, yeah, these athletes deserve compensation for their name, their, their image, their likeness? I think that's the only way to view it. So the majority opinion kind of is a narrow holding. It's just basically saying, hey, we have all these thoughts, but at the end of the day, we're just agreeing with the lower court decisions, but it had some really good language. This concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, which is, I say concurring, there's a majority opinion that all the judges have to sign off on in some way, shape or form. And a concurring opinion is not required. It's just, hey, I'm the, I'm the judge. I have something else to say that I want to put out here. If another judge wants to agree with me in this concurring opinion, it's fine, but it's not necessary. So, you know, Sean, to your point, the last sentence of this concurring opinion says, quote, the NCAA is not above the law period, hard stop, close the book on the decision, right? If there's a mic drop moment for the Supreme Court of the United States, that's what it is. So I, I viewed this um, you know, as a moment of saying, hey, if the NCA is challenged in court on any level uh, from here on out, this is the Supreme Court of the United States basically sending a signal to all the lower courts and the federal court level, and the state court level, hey, the highest court in all the land is not on board with what the NCA is doing. They think they have some kind of quasi antitrust exemption no, they are not above the law. They're not Major League Baseball. They don't have an antitrust exemption, and we're not inclined to give it to them. And I'm on board with college athletes being able to make a little bit of money off their name, image, and, image and likeness, Dan. But I wonder, do you think this gives certain schools in certain states, because right now there are only six states that have laws ready to go July 1 that will just kind of open things up to athletes. Do you think that this will create a competitive disadvantage because if I'm look, Alabama's already getting a bunch of five stars. I get that. But don't you think Nick Saban could go to some local businesses and say, Hey, there's a kid we would love to get. Well, as soon as if I guarantee him a car dealership endorsement 
he'll come here. Does this not get into a little bit of an ugly situation in that way? Yes and no. And I guess there's, I'm trying to weed through these specific state NIL laws. And I'll just tell you in a, in a broad brushstroke, they're all very different, right? Some states basically say that schools like a Nick Saban cannot promise you NIL, that you're left on your own to, as an athlete to fend for yourself, which is a little weird. Some of them allow you to have an agent, whether or not the agent's going to be allowed by the school. It's all different state mandates. So, I mean, I put it this way. It creates a lot of chaos. What would have kind of undone some of this chaos, which is news that, that came across uh, you know, my uh, Twitter feed this morning, the NCAA had been for about two years trying to come up with their own, own version of name, image, and likeness. And what would it would have done, you know, Chris, you mentioned, six states on July 1st are going to have name, image, and likeness in their states. Uh, the other 44, some, some of them have name, image, and likeness that will go into effect in 2022, and others have zero. But what this NCAA version of name, image, and likeness would have basically lessened the gap between the six haves as of at least July 1st and the 44 have-nots because it would have brought up the floor. Now, this morning, the NCAA comes out and they say, you know what? Scrap that. That thing that we worked on for two years, uh, we're actually going to throw it out the door. It's gone. We're going to put in the recycling bin. It had empty recycling bin. And uh, we want the schools to figure it out on their own. Uh, that's with seven days to go. It's almost of getting a, a two-year project put on your table and saying, hey, guys, uh, I, I tried this, but uh, it's now your guys' turn, seven days. And, Chris, you kind of asked me, how did this happen? Uh, that language that you had a very fancily come up across the bottom of the screen. The NCAA is not above the law. So, to me, I think this is the NCAA saying, well, if we do it, we might get challenged in a court of law because we're now not above the law. The Supreme Court has spelled that out. But if the schools do it, it's almost a little bit of an out. Hey, we didn't do anything. We gave it to the schools. We created the free market. And uh, if the schools did something wrong, it's not on us. So, uh, mm. you know, Sean, I was listening to you talk about uh, your boss, right, taking accountability. This is not the NCA taking accountability. This is the NCA punting to the uh, to the employees and saying, hey, you guys figured out. That's why uh, I pay you <laughs> minimum wage you work here these terrible hours. <laughs> right. All right, so let's look forward then. Obviously, this this is going to invite – some future challenges here. What do you think is the next big challenge and how long, if you, you, you could put a potential timetable out, do you, do you think before we just reach the point where athletes are getting paid uh, for their name and image or maybe even beyond that with different endorsements and that type of thing? Yeah, I, I, I have said for a while that I thought the NCAA was going to file something that's uh, called an injunction, which is basically the state's uh, getting sued by the NCA to block those laws from going into effect. So that wouldn't have made the date July 1st. It would have kind of pushed it back indefinitely. And that I thought was by the NCA to buy time for the federal government to come in, which if the federal government comes in and passes a law, it's the same thing that I know from Union College, right, guys? The drinking age is 21 years of age across the country. It's a clean rule. When the federal government passes a law, it's clean. So then you don't have six states in the, like the Alabamas and the Floridas getting a recruiting advantage. Everyone has the same laws. So I thought that was their plan. Uh, but as of this morning, if the NCA is putting out this memo and saying, hey, schools, you guys can figure it out. Uh, I guess it seems like they're going to let this July 1st deadline come and go. Uh, and then it's up to the schools as to how quickly they can test uh, their own rules to allow this to go into play. But what the NCA is saying essentially is we are not going to penalize you schools if you allow your athletes to get paid. So that's that's the new plan. So. Sean, to your question, I, I think July 1st is the date. I, I, I really do. I think within a week, we're going to have uh, athletes getting paid for the first time in NCAA history. Unbelievable. Right. Dan, so much of this started with Ed O'Bannon from UCLA uh, and the video games. But I remember seeing in the Fab Five documentary, Chris Weber saying, 
you know, I'm at the NCAA tournament, I'm walking by these stores and I'm seeing a Michigan four Jersey hanging up and I'm thinking, how much are they getting for that? I'm not getting anything. So are we talking about Jersey sales in a college bookstore? Are we talking about video games? Obviously, are we talking about endorsements on top of this? I mean, what is, what really is the scope of how college athletes will be able to benefit from the NIL? Okay, so a couple things, uh, yeah. and a great, great documentary for the Fab Five, uh, the big 30 for 30 guys, so definitely, definitely respect that. Um, yeah, so I guess number one, a lot of these NIL bills, and I will say they're all a little bit different, but the schools don't want you to profit off of their logos, insignias. So for example, if you're a University of Tennessee athlete, you can have some type of commercial where you have that big Tennessee Volunteers logo and profiting off of it. So they don't want, they don't envision that. Uh, so I guess that's one. You, it's not the jersey sales. I don't think are going to come with it. I don't think they're going to get paid for their services, which is you know uh, the TV deals and like the gates at the game. So I think that's a separate conversation, maybe at the Supreme Court at some point in time, but but not today. Uh, the second uh, point you raised, Sean, is about uh, video games. So that's a fancy thing called group licensing, which the NCA and the conferences control to some extent. That's basically saying, hey, uh, we're going to give you all the license to all of our team schools, those logos. We're going to let, uh, you know, EA Sports or, you know, uh, some type of video game company figure it out. I, that could happen, maybe. Um, it just, it's, it's not really on the table for name, image, likeness. Now, the third thing that you said is the endorsements. That's what's on the table. So I've always thought the easiest way to explain this is something called like an entrepreneurship license. You can go out and if you can make money off of like your TikTok account, your Instagram account, your yep. YouTube, and you're not using the school's name, image, and likeness, you're only using your own name, image, and likeness, and you're a solo kind of player in this field, that's fine. So you could be a Nike athlete, right? Uh, you could be a Gatorade NIL athlete. You could be a Coca-Cola athlete, right? Those are the type of endorsements that are envisioned. So I guess the big question that we still need to figure out is how athletes getting paid and getting a piece of that endorsement pie impacts the school's bottom line. It impacts the, maybe we'll say the non-revenue generating sports like softball or swimming or rowing if those sports end up surviving this NIL era because traditionally, as you guys both know, basketball and football are, are the money-making sports and that revenue is then passed on to the other sports. If you start taking money away from those sports, what does that mean to the overall pie? So yeah. that's one of the exciting slash you know, dangerous questions that's left to be answered. How do you see all of this impacting whether or not guys even go to school? In other words, you know, you might have a guy who would normally go for one year and then go right to the NBA. Are guys going to stick around longer now if they've got a chance to make some money there before they move on? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most fascinating questions. And, and I've always thought that if you pour money into college athletes, like Zion Williamson could have made a ton of money at Duke. Uh, you know, Tim Tebow, obviously, he has a little bit of a different standpoint on this stuff. But I, when Gainesville, what would he have made? Right. He was like a yeah. legitimate god down there. Could he have commanded like a 50 million dollar a year in earnings? Like it's not it's not crazy as, as crazy as that sounds like, you know, Zion was the national spotlight game on weekdays for no reason. And, and he was the really one commanding that. So, yeah, I, I think there's a world right. if you don't want to go into the NFL. Right. There's 100 plus college D1 college football programs. If you don't want to go into the NFL and be some third string guy you know, on the practice squad, making very little money. Why wouldn't you stay for four years? Right. Same thing goes with the point guard and, you know, at a, at a maybe a, a Mac school, um, you know, or even like a Siena basketball. Right. Yep. Like there's a national spotlight when you're in the tournament. Maybe stay there. Right. Maybe maybe stay there and, and try to hang on and make a couple extra dollars. But who knows? Right. The capital region is a what that's going to bring in but i think fair market value is scaring schools while it's at the same time exciting players because we don't know what that is right so 
uh, yeah, I think there's a world where athletes want to stay and, and, uh, and really see, see this out and see how much money they can make while being the big man on campus, right? And not holding someone else's bag as a rookie at the professional level. Co-host of the podcast, Conduct Detrimental uh, Law Professor at New York Law School and a buddy of ours, a Union College graduate, Dan Lust, helping us out here on what all of this means from what the Supreme Court decided against the NCAA this week. Dan, thank you so much, man. I hope, I hope. look, legalities and sports are always there. We're going to find a moment uh, again in the near future to bother you for sure. No problem. My pleasure. And uh, let's go you guys. There you go. There you go. Dan, thank you so much, buddy. Uh, bags, a ton of big news here locally, too. Uh, Niski Unigrad, Kayla Trainer gets the Syracuse women's lacrosse job. We're going to talk with Kayla coming up on today's show. NBA playoffs, man. Trey Young, is he going to be able to take the Hawks to an NBA title? They've won three straight game ones on the road this postseason another incredible performance from trey middle of the week in game one cannot wait to get into some of the hawks discussion and the nba playoffs after our guy kevin herter boosted them from that philadelphia 76er series into the eastern conference finals against the milwaukee bucks where they currently are you're watching honorado and bagnardi when we come back kayla trainer the new head coach of the syracuse women's lacrosse team will join us hang on at Marcella's Appliance Center, our commitment is to you, providing essential appliances that families depend on for cooking, refrigeration, cleaning, and sanitation, plus appliance repair. You can have peace of mind that Marcella's is here for you today and every day, like we have been since 1957, helping you make the right choice with trusted brands like Whirlpool, Maytag, KitchenAid, Genere, and many more. Shop Marcella's Appliance Center in-store, online, or by phone. We're here for you. Depressed, overworked, job sucks, underappreciated. When life sucks, just say Dilligaf. Our clothing line puts the FU back into fun. Nothing will give you greater satisfaction. Dilligaf isn't just an attitude, it's a lifestyle. Some people ride the crazy train, we drive that mother. Check out our selection at DillaGaffUSA.com. And now, back to Honorado and Bagnardi. Brought to you by Alpenhouse. Sean, as we run down the number of head coaches there have been in Syracuse women's lacrosse history, you won't believe, one, how few there have been, two, how incredibly accomplished they all are coming into the job as players and as coaches. And Kayla Trainer is the same as really the, the guy who came before her, Gary Gate, was an incredible player in Syracuse lacrosse program history. Kayla Trainer is as well. And of course, she's a Niski Unigrad. And Kayla joins us here on the show on Honorado and Bagnardi. Kayla, it's Chris Honorado, Sean Bagnardi. First of all, congratulations. Thanks for joining the show. And uh, what have the last 24 or 36 hours been like for you? Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. Um, been unbelievable. Uh, I I was just saying to somebody when I was driving in this morning to Syracuse to the office, 
it's been the first time that it's actually felt real. So it's been amazing and I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, so you're there now settling in, right? What are some of the first things you've got on your checklist that you want to get accomplished? Um, well, first, uh, what I'm really working on throughout the summer and trying to start that now is just, it's all about developing relationships with my staff and our players. So um, I had a team Zoom with them the other night, but you know, now it's just connecting and trying to get to know them and then really just developing that relationship. You won a national championship at Boston College. Uh, your dad is from the Boston area, is he not? Was this was this a tough sell for you to say, hey, I'm leaving BC to go back to my alma mater? It was certainly really emotional. The BC coaching staff and the players mean a lot to me. And we've just been on an incredible journey together. Um, so I was really sad, but it was a no-brainer for me just being able to um, accomplish a dream of coaching here at Syracuse at my alma mater with such a great program and tradition and history. So, um, you know, it, although it was really sad, it, I'm very excited to be here. What do you think are some of the key things you learned as an assistant that make you really ready to make this jump to the head coach position, especially for somebody at, at such a young age? Yeah, there was, so much I learned in being an assistant and um, Acacia taught me a lot about, you know, becoming a head coach and she really mentored me in that area. Um, she let me in on a lot of different things of um, different meetings and being a part of the relationship with the administration at Boston College and scholarship and budget and financial decisions. So I'm very thankful that she was able to show me the ropes and you know, take me under her wing and I owe her a lot of thank yous and a lot of my success has come from her. Is there, you, as Bags mentioned, you are still very young, obviously, and, and your playing days would be fresh in many people's minds who are either recruits to Syracuse or current Syracuse players. Uh, so do you have to talk about what you accomplished there at all, is that kind of already understood? What is, what is the role of a, a coach who was a great player in in passing that message on? Like, hey, this is how you get to four straight championship weekends. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about, for me, um, the advantage of me having played at Syracuse in recruiting is – that I said this yesterday, that I want the players to have the same amazing experience that I did. And really, a lot of that is off the field um, and just the relationships and being a part of the Syracuse family. So for me, it's about, I think I understand how amazing of an experience it is to play for this school and to play lacrosse in the city of Syracuse. So for me, it's just about I want the players to come here and love their experience the same way I did. How much of what you're going to do will be that balance between obviously the X's and O's and coaching your team and then the recruiting side of things? Yeah, well, while we're in season, obviously it's all about coaching up your team and, you know, building chemistry and all those things. But uh, one of my philosophies as a coach and a lot of coaches, but recruiting is really important to me. And, um, one of my goals is to bring 
the best talent we can to Syracuse. So uh, recruiting is a huge piece to the puzzle and that will sort, certainly be very important to this coaching staff. Kayla, can you give us some background on how all of this went down? This will, I'm sure this will stun you. There were a lot of rumors out there on social media that certain things happened, and I'm curious as to whether or not they did. When did Syracuse first approach you about the job? How many conversations did you have with administration and, and the AD, John Wildhack, who, who I love and have had the opportunity to talk with a bunch of times? Um, what was the process like? Yeah. There was a lot of rumors out there, and <laughs> I can confirm that they were rumors. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was just a lot of talk and a lot of speculation. And, you know, Gary leaving this program was a really big deal. So a lot of people were interested on who's going to fill that role. And, you know, people were just saying a lot of different things. But, uh, no, the process was pretty... Um, seamless and easy and they reached out and I came and did an interview and went through the process with the administration and the search committee and shortly after I was offered the job and I accepted um almost immediately so uh yeah it was pretty simple and seamless and um the but I can confirm that there's a lot of rumors <laughs> out there <laughs> Do you feel any pressure sort of filling big shoes, especially for your, your first head coaching job? Or is there something sort of comforting about that, especially the fact that you're going back to your own mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always uh, a little nerve wracking and there is pressure. But for me, this is sort of my comfort zone, uh, not just to have playing here and knowing the university, but really just what we're trying to accomplish here is something that I've been trying to accomplish my whole life. This isn't a new goal of mine. Um, and this is the place I want to be to accomplish that goal. So yes, there's definitely pressure, but again, this is not new to me. This is something that I've been experiencing my whole life. Did you know when you were playing that you were going to want to coach? Yeah, I, I knew in high school, I, part of my choice in choosing Syracuse was um, like when I went on visits, I was talking about how I want to be a coach and that was a part of my decision. And I really thought Gary could mentor me and help me to becoming a great coach. Well, look, this team made it to the national championship game. Uh, and that's despite some key injuries. This 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 team is loaded if it comes back as, as we assume it will, Kayla. So uh, you talked about the pressure, but that's gotta be exciting as well uh, in your first head coaching job. Congratulations from us in the Capital Region. You know, a ton of people in the 518 will be rooting for you. That's for sure. Uh, congrats, and, and thank you for taking the time with us here. Thank you so much. Kayla Trainer, the new head coach uh, of the Syracuse Women's Lacrosse Program and one of the greatest players in Syracuse lacrosse history bags. Really, really cool opportunity for Kayla, who at 27 years old gets the call from her alma mater and says, hey, do you want to be our head coach? Pretty cool. How much of an idiot were you at 27? I mean, you still are. But could you imagine yeah. having a job with that kind of pressure? I know. It no, to, to have your stuff together, yeah. right? That um, when, when your alma mater, which is one of the greatest programs in the country, calls you and says, hey, do you want to be our head coach? Like, I mean. But that's just it. You or I wouldn't be ready. She clearly is. So, uh, 
young, but you know, that's irrelevant if you are game for the task. And, and she obviously is yeah. um, already, you can tell very calm and collected and, yep. and businesslike and, and ready to go. Do you think if you were taking over, especially a team that is already basically expected to win that you'd be more excited about taking that team to a, a, a back to a championship potential or, or would you rather, would you be more looking forward to doing it with players you recruited yourself? Okay. I'm going to give you the coach answer first. I think the coach answer is no, give me a team that's ready to win now. Yeah. And, and the players I recruit, my own recruits will simply be better each class because they want to be part of the winning culture. That's already been established. Um, I'm not, I'm not good at, at life balance things, so when I hear like, hey, this team's expected to win and they were in the national championship game last year. And if the injured players come back, they'll be a top five team in the country. Certainly. I hear pressure. Yeah. I hear, you know, all I hear is possible disappointment. Well, it's a little um, rude because if you won, you were just expected to. So did you really do anything that great? And if you don't, why didn't you win? You were expected to. It's like Steve Nash in a way, right? You come into a, a team with yeah. big stars already on it, and it's like win or bust. And then you realize as the season goes on, no, no, every season is its own entity. and You have your own challenges you've got to overcome. And, you know, I'm sure she'll face some adversity in her first season and, and how she responds to that will be ultimately how we decide, right, what kind of coach she's going to be. But would you rather be the coach of the Nets or the coach of the Rockets? Today, the Nets. Yeah, of course. You know, so I'm just saying, like, if you were to choose a situation, you would always choose what you perceive to be the best situation because of the talent on the roster. But you also have to understand the, the pressure that comes along with the expectations of winning. And it's why I've long said that I think coach of the year in any sport, you shouldn't be penalized simply because you have the best players. I think that makes it the most challenging job in all of sports. So I've always said Steve Kerr should have been coach of the year every single year. Hmm. He had Durant, Curry, Green, Thompson. Even when you take Durant out of that mix, I always thought the importance of a good coach just to keep that thing on track and be able to get it to the finish line, that makes you coach of the year. And it's funny because you, Steve Kerr, it's like, I still always think of Steve Kerr and go, yeah, Mark Jackson kind of built that first championship team, right? So it's like, you just can't win. You can't win. Bags, you want to address this here? What do you got going on behind you? Oh, yeah. So this door <laughs> is an angle. Uh, yeah. the, at an angle into the Hang on a second. closet door. There you go. Yeah. Closet door here, double yeah. door opens. This one's, yeah, on an angle. The yeah. roof kind of opens out from. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. All right. So we settled that one. I'm, I Look, I'm, I feel better. Look, anytime we can answer a critical sports question from a viewer, <laughs> we're happy to do it. There's no doubt about that. All right. Are the Mets for real? One stat that says they are, one stat that says they may not be. And what about the Hawks? Are we buying in? Charles Barkley, middle of the week, says, I'm finally ready to admit that the Hawks are good, that they are legit, that they are for real. And that was after they won a third straight game one on the road to open a playoff series. That's coming up on Honorado and Bagnardi. 
Nutrition is 80% of a healthy lifestyle. With four locations in the 518, Bold has you covered. Delicious? I think that's a yes. It's never been easier or more affordable to eat healthy. Salads with 17 dressings to choose from. Acai bowls with unlimited toppings. Power grain bowls, oatmeal, smoothies, artisan toasts, and Belgium waffles. Live Bold seven days a week. At work, home, or on the go. Dine in, grab and go, pick up or delivery. Live Bold, eat Bold. And now, back to Honorado and Bagnardi. Brought to you by Alpenhouse. All right, Shawnee, before we get to the Mets conversation, the Home Run Derby, which has two big names in it as of this week, uh, a couple of comments here. Uh, one from Joe, if I was an MLB pitcher, I would not disrobe for the purpose of searching of any foreign substances on my body unless there's a court order warrant. You know what's funny? As I'm watching the Scherzer, and, and I'll play it here again, as I'm watching the Scherzer and Sergio Romo video, doesn't it remind you of like going through airport security? Yeah. Uh, sir, you, uh, sir, you still put the hat down, please. Um, the belt, are you wearing your belt? No, okay, take that off. Yep, drop it onto the conveyor belt. It, it just yeah. reminds me of what, and then you and then you walk through and yeah. you, it, something still beeps and they say, okay, I've, I've got to check you. Yeah, now to be fair, obviously, the, the disrobing part is, is these guys doing that on their own. Nobody was asking them to do that. Correct. But, how far does it go? Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate question because <laughs> if a manager is not convinced, uh, yeah, hey, check his hat, check his glove, check his hair, how far does that go and, and what are the limits going to be for what the umpire can ask to check? Right. So right. that will be interesting to see moving forward. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you think the Mets are for real? You are a Mets fan well-established on the show Hmm. are the New York Mets who stand in first place for real. What does that mean? Can they win a division or can they win a championship? Uh, That means, will they win the division? Okay. They're for real in that they can win the division largely because of the rest of the division. Okay. This is not for some reason, a good division, even though on paper, it probably should be better than it is, but yes, they can. They've, they've proven they can stay competitive even to the point of being in first place despite a lot of injuries, and you assume they're only going to get better, right? McNeil is back now. Conforto yep. has made his return. So it's going to hinge on the pitching and, and the health of the pitching long-term and whether or not this team can ultimately have success in the playoffs. But can they win the division? They certainly can. Can they lose the division? Absolutely. All right, here's there's these are the two numbers that jump out to me when I look at whether or not the Mets should be considered real contenders, okay? I hold run differential in a high regard for most teams. I think it's indicative of whether or not a team is really going to be able to be successful in, in the playoffs. Um, Mets have the largest division lead of any first-place team in baseball, but they also have the second-lowest run differential, and, and quite frankly, it's razor thin. So as you're watching us, there's a chance that that could have changed even based on what is happening in the NL Central. Um, so I wonder, are they go- really good enough to beat the Dodgers, Giants, maybe even the Cubbies if they stay together through the trade deadline? And the run differential tells me no. But as I watch the Mets, my my brain, my eyes tell me yes. And I've made the point on this show before, the pitching 
is so good that yeah. if they get into the playoffs, yeah. they're good enough to beat even the Dodgers when the Dodgers are fully healthy. Right. They have a winning record already against the Padres this year. Why shouldn't we believe they could beat some of the best teams in the National League? Yeah, I'm with you on run differential. Obviously, scoring more runs than you allow is the name of the game. So looking at that as one stat to determine how a team is overall, I'm okay with that. But there's a big difference between your run differential over five games, let's say, in your normal rotation or a potential seven-game yep. series when you're going to throw DeGrom twice and and manage the game a completely different way. So, yes, in a lot of ways, they're built – to have playoff success when you look at the pitching. But like I said, it's all going to come down to the health at that point, and they still have to get there. I don't know that even though, like I said, they can win the division, they could certainly lose. I can't sit here and say the Mets are going to win the division based on everything we've seen. It's not that sure-handed enough as you'd like it to be. But, yeah, if they get there, you have to like their chances because of the pitching if they're healthy. You know what I love from this past week? I love that – one, Shohei Atani said, I'm in for the home run derby. I love that out of him. Yeah. And I love that Pete Alonso was like, you know what? I won it last year. I'm coming back. And I don't know that Otani's decision had anything to do with that. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is not going to be part of it. He was he was uh, last year's, well, 2019. 2019 runner up. Uh, but Alonzo is back. Can I get you fired up for the home run derby with these two names alone? No. I've seen Alonzo win one, so I don't really need to see him in another one. I'd almost prefer at this point that he not do it just because, yeah, and I'm not, I don't get on the, well, a guy overextended himself for the home run derby and then went into a slump. No, if you don't get hurt, that's just an excuse for having a bad second half. Yep. Um, but I don't need to see it. Uh, look. We're talking about a pitcher in the home run derby. That's exciting. It's fun. Maybe I'm just not a big home run derby guy. Maybe that's what my problem is. I, this doesn't generate a ton of interest for me. Will I have it on? Sure. Am I going to be that locked in? I don't really love the format. Frankly, Alonzo shouldn't even have won. Yeah. So that's yeah. another issue for me where I have a hard time getting into it. I'll have it on. I'll watch. I will watch for as far as Otani advances. You're not going to turn it I, I will. I will watch. that night. I will be invested for as long as Otani advances. Although July right. 12th, we could have the NBA Finals game on. Who knows at this point? But yeah, uh, yeah, not into it. Okay. Um, Dan Lust, who we had on earlier in the show, talked about the Supreme Court's pixie dust or magical yeah. dust or whatever he said. Uh, sprinkling it on the NCAA and how business booms from there, which he thinks will probably happen now, even though the NCAA, I would imagine, and President Mark Emmert aren't happy about the decision. I think it may benefit them in the long run. Carol says, Hawks have been sprinkled with magic dust. Have they ever? It is unbelievable. We sat here on the show before the playoffs started, Bags, and we said, you know what? If Atlanta gets by the Knicks, that's a really nice season. And then it was kind of like, can they push the Sixers series to six games? Is that possible? And then they win it, thanks to our guy Kevin Herter with his Game 7 performance. And now middle of the week, we see a third straight Game 1 on the road to open a series where the Hawks win. Unbelievable stuff, man. I mean, 
if I told you back in March, hey, you're going to watch the NBA Finals, and it's going to be Hawks and whoever, Hawks and Suns even, you, you'd have laughed at me. Of course you would have, and you'd been right to. Yep. So the Hawks frustrate me watching them because it's an awful lot of Trey Young. Now, you can't complain when it works, okay? And he can drop almost 50 points and get you a win on the road, and it's great, and he's the big hero. But when I look at the box score, man, he's 4 out of 13 from 3, and he is chucking. I mean, he's – I'm okay with your best player taking a shot without running a play, right? You ISO a guy or you bring a guy up and he takes a heat check. We see – a lot of great players do it, certainly in today's game. Damian Lillard is another one. Steph Curry, where these guys can come up and pull up from just about anywhere. Trey Young is still not Steph Curry or Damian Lillard. He has the range where he can make those shots. But it's like he comes up and he's chucking in these critical situations. And sometimes they go in, most times last night they didn't, but he still finds a way to get to almost 50 and they win the game. I just want to see a little bit more basketball being played. Maybe it's too old-fashioned of me because, like I said, it's working. It's working enough for them. But there are better shots to be had than early in the shot clock, five feet behind the three-point line, throwing up a brick in a critical spot in the fourth quarter. You still get the win. You still get the win. But I got to see better than that, especially out of my star player. Run some plays. Get in the paint once in a while. Because when he does, when he sets something up and makes a pass, somebody gets an open shot. And I don't like the lazy argument that somebody would give. Well, like, well, they still won, and he had 48. So why are you banging on the guy? Because by not finding something in his game to critique, we just become complacent. And and that's why you have a game seven like he did, where if Herter doesn't go off, they don't win that game because Trey was so ineffective from the field. And I'm with you. That four for 13 number is important because they don't run a lot more than just high pick and roll with Trey Young and, hey, go create something now. Um, I think he's a special player. I'm on board with Trey Young. But but I, I agree that there were fourth quarter shots in Wednesday night's game one, and he was short with them. He clearly didn't have his legs the way you would have wanted him to to be shooting from 25 feet out. They were not smart decisions. And we've seen him regress a little bit in that department the last two, three games where all season long bags, he had been such an effective distributor of the ball, but also an efficient scorer. Now, the 413s one number, but he was still 50% from the floor overall. He was, which believe he should be taking more twos. But go and, ahead. Okay. And he accounted for, now 48 of them were his, but he accounted for 72 of the Hawks' points last night. Yeah, 11 assists, 41 minutes, six turnovers. Plus minus is 10 if that's a stat you care about. So Uh, A plus 10. A plus 10, yeah. It's a huge number. Yes. Overall, he's obviously the best player. And he is a guy who you can see his impact that he has on the game. And and ultimately, you don't win without him. But he could be even better if he just took better shots and made better decisions. And not by much. We're really only talking about a few. But for me, it's in the critical spots in the game when I see him not making the best decisions. Overall, you can look at the body of work and the stats and say that's still a really great game. And no matter how you get to a win in the playoffs, especially a road win, you'll take it however you get there. But 
I just wonder what this guy could really be if he if he improves his basketball IQ and takes some better shots. Yeah, look, I think that's that's the point is that he has already impressed us incredibly this postseason. Uh, he could become even better. Um, do you want to wrap up the next season here? You want to put a little bow on it? I'll give you a, a minute or so if you've got something in you here. Well, what is there to say? I mean, I don't know. You tell me they underachieved. They did. They under, yeah, they, they underachieved two things. You'll, you'll look back on obviously is the injuries. What could it have been if, if we were healthy? And I said to somebody yesterday, it's like a part of that makes it easier and a part of it makes it harder because you could say, well, we weren't healthy. But then the other side of it is like, we just weren't healthy. You know, you want to lose at your best, as yep. dumb as that sounds, yep. because you want to see what it was going to look like, all of them together. Really, at the end of the year, we, we did not see the big three together nearly enough, only really a handful of times in the regular season. And obviously, it just, it just didn't come to be in that series against Milwaukee. So it's frustrating. It still went seven games against the team that – could win the championship. Who knows? Um, if Kevin Durant's toe is a centimeter behind the line at the end of regulation, that's a three and you advance instead of a two and then you lose in overtime. Frustrating part for me too is Joe Harris, man. Especially when you have injuries, you need one other guy to step up. It was Herder in game seven for the yep. Hawks. It needed to be somebody other than what you were getting from Durant in game seven for Brooklyn and Joe Harris had his chance with some some open looks and a huge shot in overtime. Somebody else had to step up, and nobody else did when they needed them to. So I don't know. You just hope they can run it back. I'd like to see a, a healthy big three go for it one time, and if you do, you, you'll take your chances with that team. Unfortunately, the way the league was set up this year with LeBron out of the playoffs and the, the teams that are remaining – felt like this would have been their best shot to get it because who knows how things stack up on any given year. Next season, rosters could look all different. Look, I think the I think the Brooklyn roster will look it could. It could different look enough. You mentioned Joe Harris. I, I wonder if he's there next year. We know Spencer Dinwiddie won't be. Um, he declined his player option. My guess is DeAndre Jordan isn't on this team unless he wants to take very little money. I, I think Brooklyn's roster bags look special. Looks will, different. Will all of the big three be there? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. And 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 Jeff points it out, and I said it on last week's show that when the Warriors went all in and they lost Durant and Clay Thompson to injury, you no longer had the David Wests, Andre Iguodala's, Harrison Barnes, uh, Sean Livingston's of the world. There, w- there wasn't that supporting cast that really made them a championship team. Uh, next week's show, we are live from the Novice Clothing Company headquarters. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. You've been watching Honorado and Bagnardi. <laughs>